You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in-line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash crimes, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash crimes to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash crimes. Voices for Justice is a podcast that uses adult language and discusses sensitive and potentially triggering topics, including violence, abuse, and murder. This podcast may not be appropriate for younger audiences. All parties are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. Some names have been changed or omitted per their request or for safety purposes. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Sarah Turney, and this is Voices for Justice. Today, I am discussing the extremely perplexing death of 27-year-old Holly Ellsworth Clark. Holly went missing from Hamilton, Ontario in January of 2020, after telling friends and family that she feared for her life. She even begged her parents to come and get her and fly her home. They planned on retrieving Holly the next day, but before they could get to her, she was already gone. And nine months later, her remains were found. But her family and friends are still searching for answers as to what happened to Holly. So, let's get into it. Holly Ellsworth Clark was born on November 24, 1992, in Clarenville, Newfoundland, but she grew up in Calgary, Alberta. She was the youngest of three children, having an older sister named Kate and an older brother named Caleb. And she was raised by her mother, Greta, and her father, Dave. Now, Holly was extremely athletic. She was musically inclined, and she loved the outdoors. Growing up, Holly and her family spent a lot of time camping, but it wasn't like sit in the tent and play your Game Boy type of camping. She was really into it and learned a lot of survival skills. By the time she got to high school, her neighbors knew her as the girl that rode her bike through the neighborhood for hours on end with her headphones in, singing at the top of her lungs. And it was around this time that her father Dave taught her a few chords on the guitar, and she just never put it down. She actually began practicing in secret at a friend's house, and then surprised her family by showing them the songs that she learned. It really seems like Holly was just one of those people that could do whatever she put her mind to. After high school, she ended up going to the University of Calgary, where she also excelled, 
winning three gold medals and one silver medal while she competed on the wrestling team. In 2016, she would graduate with her degree in political science. But Holly was determined to continue making music. After college, Holly moved to Toronto with a boyfriend that she'd had for about a year and a bandmate from her band Deep Bite. But after a while, the band broke up and so did Holly and her boyfriend. From there, Holly moved about an hour away to Hamilton, where she would go on to create solo music and front the band Raspberry Jam. Looking at Holly's pictures and her videos, like, she was just that girl, that cool girl, that how-do-you-get-away-with-baby-bangs-and-hats girl. When I looked up Holly's music from her time with Deep Bite, it gave me such sublime vibes. Not only is her music pretty laid back, but the videos are set in a house that looks like a house every 20-something lived in with their friends at one point. It's a little messy with mismatched furniture, and Holly is wearing an oversized t-shirt that goes right to the bottom of her shorts, and she's singing barefoot. The camera goes a bit in and out of focus as the person operating the camera moves from bandmate to bandmate. Overall, it just has this really cool funky vibe, and it's just so full of soul. Now, I watched every video of Holly that I could find performing her music. And although I enjoyed the music she created with the bands that she was a part of, I think Holly really excelled as a solo artist. In one video posted on her YouTube channel titled Holly Clark, she performs the cover of The Poor Song from the Yeah Yeah Yeahs. And I think the description she wrote for the video gives us a little insight as to her motivation. Quote, This is my favorite cover to play. When I was in high school, I listened to a lot of alternative rock. The Arctic Monkeys and Phantom Planet were the soundtrack to my life. There weren't and still aren't a lot of female vocalists in the genre. And for the longest time, I was convinced that I didn't like female singers. Finding the Yeah Yeah Yeahs was eye-opening. They rocked my world and shifted my perspective on my own relationship to music. End quote. And although this cover is great... And I can definitely see that the Yeah Yeah Yeahs absolutely influenced her. Again, I think the music that she wrote and performed herself around 2017 and 2018 just shows so much soul and emotion. I'd be lying if I said I didn't cry when I was listening to her music. She just radiates through what she plays. But of course, this is mostly me looking in from the outside. So for this episode, I interviewed Holly's friend and boss, Elle McPherson. Elle was extremely close to Holly and knew about her musical ambitions, even allowing her to work from home when she made the move from Toronto to Hamilton. Elle is also a spokesperson for Holly's family. When you request an interview, you either get her father Dave or you get Elle. And I got Elle. And I have to say, she is absolutely amazing. She knows so much about Holly and this case, so you will be hearing a lot from her from here on out. But let's start with what Holly was like according to Elle. You know, and I always like to, of course, you know, talk about what Holly was like. There's so much out there on the internet, you know, about her, and she seems absolutely amazing and honestly, like, so much fun. Um, But I wanted to get it from you, you know? Can you tell me a little bit about what Holly was like? You know, that you you absolutely hit the the nail on the head. She's fun. Uh, Holly spent most of her time growing up in Calgary. She went out tree planting with her, her boyfriend out on the West Coast for a couple of months. She was a 
the star athlete. She was a, a wrestler. Um, she picked up the guitar after her father Dave taught her, her a couple of chords and she kind of went away and did her own thing and came back and was like, hey, I've, I've got some stuff I'd like you to hear. Um, she's very, very jovial. She's happy to talk to anybody. She is the type of person that you would, she would be sitting down at a coffee shop and she would see that you were sitting by yourself and she'd invite you over to sit with her. Um, incredibly extroverted, bubbly, fun, just absolutely enjoyed life. Uh, in the same breath, she certainly loved her her private time as well. She loved creating music and artwork and uh, just being present in the moment. So she's, I think we've described her a few times as being the, the girl next door or the girl that you would get to babysit your kids. Um, she's she's the type of person that that you wanted to be around. She honestly just seems like so much fun and like we would be friends. Um, just like a super cool person. Like I'm envious. Like she's way cooler than I will ever be. Um. Yeah. yeah, you would be both. She's, I mean, she's so funny. She would, she was very cautious about how she ate, what she drank um, and not in a, not in an inappropriate way. Just she liked to eat clean and she really was not a, a fan of drinking or, or drugs for that matter. And one of my favorite favorite stories about her she came into the office one day and she brought her lunch so we were all sitting around chatting and out she whips one of those like plastic you know those plastic boxes that spinach is in at the grocery store oh yeah she whips out the box of spinach and opens it up and just starts eating the spinach raw and I'm like dude are you are you putting like do you want some vinegar or oil she's like no (laughs) cleaning man clean eats and she literally ate the entire box of spinach and i'm going why like (laughs) that is not delicious you can do better and she's like no eat something better on my way home i might stop and get get a croissant or something but i'm like i I, she just she she cared enough for her herself that she would be careful about what she ate she was funny about it and she just really didn't care what you thought um, whether you thought she was weird about eating a box of spinach or or not, she was doing her thing and you were not going to stop her. So she's just, she's, she's funny. She's um, definitely somebody that's very deeply missed. She just, she's, she had her methods down. She had her reasons down and yeah, it, it really didn't matter what your opinion was. Uh, she she would go for it. She would make a try, which is part of why she was still at Hamilton. I mean, we a bunch of us had suggested she come back home, and she was she was bound and determined that she was going to stay and and make it work in this this new city that she was in. So, because of the strange events surrounding Holly's disappearance that Elle and I will discuss in a bit. I wanted to dive deeper into what brought Holly to Hamilton and her state of mind around this time. Did she appear happy there? I know that she moved quite a few times right before there, and I read something about her, you know, going out with her drummer to move there, and then, you know, a possible romantic relationship didn't develop. Um, I mean, but did she seem happy overall? Um, over, I think on the outside, yes. She she did when she first moved there. I, I mean, keep in mind she was only in Hamilton for 
less than three months before she mm-hmm. passed, she she disappeared. So she had what had happened was she'd gone from Calgary to Toronto with her then boyfriend. Uh, they found a place in Toronto and were living it up there and having a great time. They ended up forming a band with another boy and they recorded some music. The band's called Deep Bite. And eventually the the relationship with the boyfriend um, just didn't work out. And the drummer of the band moved to Hamilton. So once all of this kind of cleared the air, she ended up moving to Hamilton to spend time with the drummer. Bit of a love interest there and unfortunately was not reciprocated. Uh, but she went out to go and see what could happen. So she got out there with some some expectations of potentially having a friend and maybe something more and then having it turn into not that at all. So she didn't she didn't know anybody there except for this one boy. So she was in the midst of making friends and she was doing great at it. She was going to some co-working spaces. She was meeting people along the trails. She was, she was having a great time. She ended up in December going to Montreal to spend Christmas with some friends. And it was just before she had gone there that we were all noticing a little bit of a shift. Um, that she wasn't quite as bubbly, but she was, she was still bound and determined she was going to make it work. So initially we had all mostly chalked it up to it's a move and not knowing anybody. It's that in itself is intimidating. Never mind uh, working from home as well. Most people get their get their socializing from from physically going to work. I mean, prior to COVID, obviously. Right. Uh, but she she wouldn't have had that, right? She was working remotely for a Calgary company, so it, it was a little bit of a struggle. But it was all still new. So we just we had all chalked it up to just not. Uh, knowing anybody and and not uh, not having that support that she would normally have in in Calgary. Oh sure, and I mean you know I feel like twenty seven is such a weird age. You're approaching thirty, which I feel like there is some pressure there, and it's just this this odd phase of you know am I doing enough? Am I good enough? You know, and I imagine her with her music, she was you know kind of worried about that. Am I making the right moves? Am I in the right city to develop my career in the way that I want it to? I'm sure there was just a ton of pressure on her. Absolutely, and whether that pressure was. Uh, real, you know, like nobody was pressuring her to do anything. But I think a lot of us, I mean, speaking for me prior to 30, I put the pressure on myself and the societal norms that are out there, that there's an expectation that you're married with kids and have a job and, and, and. I think whether you subscribe to those ideologies or not, they're still there. They're still kicking around, you know? Again, there's a reason I wanted to discuss this with Elle, because Holly's story is about to get very strange. This episode of Voices for Justice is brought to you by June's Journey. I'm pretty sure everyone here loves a good mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. You get to step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. You engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. So what does that mean? Well, June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game. 
essentially you find hidden clues and uncover this mystery. But it's also more than that. You can customize your own luxurious estate island, you can join a detective club, and put your skills to the test in a detective league. I like that you can play totally alone, or if you want to play with other people, you can do that too. I find myself playing June's Journey in little breaks during the day, or most frequently at night before I go to bed. Whether you're craving a good mystery or just looking for an escape, I really do recommend June's Journey. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Like we heard Elle discuss earlier, Holly was very conscious about what she put into her body. So she didn't use drugs and she rarely even drank alcohol. I also want to stress that Holly has no history of mental illness, but let's get into what we know about Holly's disappearance. Around the beginning of the new year in 2020, Holly reported to friends that two men were trying to kill her. Unfortunately, not much else is really known about this. But Elle did tell me that Holly appeared to just kind of continue on with her normal life and didn't really seem to be worried or afraid. That is until the night of Thursday, January 9th. Now, it's important to note here that Holly had a work cell phone and a work laptop. And because her boss, Elle, was so kind to allow her to use these devices for personal use, Holly didn't feel the need to own a personal laptop or cell phone. This is important because this means Elle was able to monitor every single thing Holly was doing on those devices. And on the night of January 9th, Holly had no activity on her cell phone or laptop until 10 a.m. the next day, which would correlate with Holly's story that she was out all night being chased by two men who she says were trying to kill her. The details around this are vague, but according to Holly, she was running and hiding in the wilderness for hours. After this night of running from these men around 8 a.m. on the morning of January 10th, Holly would return home, but instead of just going through the front door, she actually broke a window in a shared living room area and from there went up to her apartment on the third floor. But here, it's important to note that Holly had kind of a unique living situation where she lived in this house with separate living spaces that was designed for artists. It even had a built-in recording studio. Here is Elle explaining the layout of the home, which will be important to know as we get further into this story. The, the home that she was living in is a, a three-story home and a basement. And it had been chopped up to more of, I don't want to call it a rooming house because I feel there's a bit of a negative connotation with that. Um, but it had been chopped up into studios, essentially. So there were a number of roommates that had their room and then there was like a shared kitchen and a shared bathroom and a shared living room. And Holly had managed to get the landlord to move out of his unit and she moved in there. So she was all the way up on the top floor and in that top floor, she had uh, her living space, a little kitchen and a bathroom. So the window that she broke was actually the kind of sitting room, living room area. But after Holly gets back to her apartment on the third floor, she calls her mother, Greta, who unfortunately misses the call. But Holly leaves the following voicemail asking for a plane ticket home. I'd really, really, really like a plane ticket out of Hamilton to Calgary, please. And I would like to come home and visit you and Dave. I'm missing you so much. And I love you so much. 
Seeing the missed call from Holly, her mother Greta just called her right back and actually didn't see the voicemail until after Holly was gone. But since we don't know Holly, I really wanted to get Elle's opinion on this voicemail. Well, so this comes back to knowing Holly. So the voicemail that she left, so that's the one that Greta did not listen to because she called Holly back right away. And when she picked up the phone, she heard the story and they said, okay, well, we'll come get you. So nobody knew that that voicemail had been left until about a week and a half later when we were all sitting in the the search headquarters and Greta was like, oh, I have a voicemail. And she listened to it and it was the one from the morning that she had missed the call. So by the time we got that and we listened to it, it just, it was heartbreaking, right? You, You wish you could have done more. You wish you could have heard it. Um, but the reality is nobody would have, again, I would never have checked the voicemail. I just, I would have talked to her and been like, okay, I'll catch this later. So for us, when we hear that voicemail, we hear Holly. Holly is incredibly sensitive. She might not show it, but she's very sensitive. So we don't, those of us that know her would never look at that voicemail and say, you know what, there's something horrifically wrong. Um, we hear the crying, we hear the, we hear her composing herself. A few of us think that perhaps somebody was around or she was just trying to get it back together. Um, but I think what you hear on that voicemail is just raw emotion. I think it's a tired girl that, that really wanted to talk to her mom and dad. When Holly spoke to her parents, she didn't give many details about what was going on, and the call only lasted about 15 minutes. But at this point, her parents were fully on board with helping her get back to Calgary. And her father, Dave, even gave her two options. He asked if she wanted him to buy her a ticket or if she wanted him to buy a ticket for himself to go out there and bring her back home. And Holly said that she would rather him fly out and come get her. So the plan was set for Dave to be in Hamilton the next day. In the meantime, Holly's parents would send her siblings Kate and Caleb to go check on Holly before Dave could get to her the next day. But again, Holly was displaying some pretty odd behavior. Here is Elle describing what happens next. So she called the mom in the morning on the the Friday, and uh, it of course made Dave and Greta worried. So they asked her sister, Kate, who lives in Toronto, to go out and check on her. So Kate went out uh, to Hamilton and she spent a couple hours with Holly until she had to go back to Toronto. Um, but the entire interaction really didn't sit very well with, with Kate. There were some things that were said that she was like, I don't know what's going on. This is, this is just not typical. So she went back to Toronto. Work, work needed her. And Dave and Greta were scheduled for a flight the next day. And they had arranged for Caleb to see her so the brother so she would holly was supposed to pick 
Caleb up from the airport that night. He was flying back from the U.S. and she didn't show. So he came to her door, I think it was around 6.37. Yeah, about 6.30 or 7. Uh, oh, no, I'm so sorry. Uh, five About 5 o'clock he landed and he made his way to the house and she wouldn't answer the door. So he got in the front door, made it all the way up to the third level, and then there's like a door to get up the last set of stairs and into her her apartment. And she wouldn't open that door, no matter how hard he tried. Um, so he ended up calling in for a welfare check with, with Hamilton police. And they came out and they asked her if she was okay. And she said she's fine. She just would like to be left alone. And they left that was that she she refused to open the door so the brother ended up leaving um and the roommates after he'd left managed to somehow find a key for the apartment magically and they unlocked the door at that point after he and the police had gone and holly was sitting on the top of the stairs and one of the roommates ended up spending a few hours with her that night and just having some tea and and drawing and doing some painting. And she had told Dave that Holly was okay. Everything was okay and everything seemed to be under control. Right, right. And then I understand that it escalated. Is that, I mean, to the point where I believe she was trying to get into a furnace room and she grabbed her mic stand and then the roommate called Dave and said, you need to get out here. Can I assume that that's the true story? Yeah, I, I mean, there's as, as with anything, there's a few details that are are a little uh, that we've left out. But the 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 roommate had stayed with her until about midnight, and then she'd gone back to sleep, like went back to her apartment, and then Holly came and uh, woke her up at around six to meditate um, and just spend a little bit of time. So they did that until about seven, and then the morning is here and there. We've got her movements and, and what she was doing in the morning. And then at about four, four o'clock or so, um, she took a, a music stand down to the base. She tried to open the door to the basement and it was locked or stuck. So she went back upstairs, got a music stand and went down to try and, and break the door. We don't know what she was going for. We have theories, but we we really don't know. Uh, something happened between banging on that door and walking out the door. We don't know what happened. We we assume something happened. Um, she talked to her dad at four o six, and Dave had a two minute conversation with her and said, "I'm coming to get you. Is your car working?" And she kind of mumbled through it. He had figured he would pick her up and they would just drive back to Calgary. Um, she kind of mumbled through it and then he said, okay, well, I'll be there in the morning. And she said, okay. And they hung up. Um, she then walked out the door two minutes later and that was that. I mean, do you have any theories about why she walked out that door? I do. Uh, (laughs) I don't have anything to prove it though. Um, Holly's, I think I mentioned earlier, Holly's quite sensitive. So if something had happened in the house where somebody was like, Hey, Holly, what are you doing? Holly, you're being ridiculous. If, I mean, there's so many different variables to that, right? Where if I'm a roommate and I hear my 
my my housemate beating down a door, I'm probably going to look over the banister and be like, hey, what are you doing? Whatever version of that might have come out from the other roommates might have been enough for her to be like, you know, I need to I need to go and cool down. I need to leave because she literally went out the front door without going back up to her apartment to get anything. So whatever went on, whether there was something involving a roommate or not, or just she realized she needed to get out of the house or whatever happened, I I think something happened. We just don't know what. Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds plausible to me with her not grabbing anything that, you know, something because I'm sensitive like that, too. If you tell me, you know, maybe you didn't do the dishes right. Like, I'm done. Like, I'd walk out the front door, too. Right. Like right? I just, I'm so sensitive. So I can see her, you know, them being like, why are you doing this? What's going on? This whole night has been terrible or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And her being like, I just need to get out of here for a second, especially being so athletic. Right. She can just like go for a run, which I imagine those endorphins and everything are just amazing. Mm-hmm. I am not athletic myself. <laughs> Um, but, you know, just from her being drawn to the outdoors and she goes right yeah. through the park, which, again, makes sense. You know, she's going to maybe just take a walk and be in nature, which it seems like kind of her happy place. Exactly. Now, the the funny part to this is two minutes after she walks out the door, the roommates then made a phone call to 911 and said that she was walking out the door with a baseball bat and that she was dangerous. So... We, uh, the police eventually like came to the, the house and got a description and they were adamant that she'd walked out the door with a baseball bat and she was dangerous. So unfortunately the first, um, reports of her going missing were along those lines that she might have a, a weapon and she might be dangerous. But the reality was once we saw the footage, she didn't walk out with anything. She didn't have anything in her hand. She walked out the door. So by them calling 911, and again, this is me completely inferring, I am not, I am, I I don't have anything to back it up. I feel like there might have been a verbal interaction with the roommates. Um, Because otherwise, why would you call 911 if it wasn't to bother, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty pretty intense reaction for your roommate to walk out the door and you immediately call 911. Me, even with my true crime brain, I don't think I would do that. I think I would just like give someone time to cool down and assume that they would be back. And that's precisely the initial reaction of Hamilton police when she first left. She is a 27-year-old woman. She has every right to walk out the door to her house and go for a walk. You know, there was no... She didn't grab a knife or a gun or a a baseball bat. She walked out the door and there's absolutely nothing illegal in doing that. So when this happened and they started uh, looking for her, it really wasn't a missing persons call. It was more of a welfare check. But again, she's over 18. So if, if anybody had seen her, which they had, they didn't, there's nothing they that really she's done wrong at all. There is no reason to to do anything at this point other than, than to be like, hey, how are you doing? What's, what's going on? So that in itself is a bit of the hardship that I think anybody who does have a missing person has to go through. If the person is over 18, they, there's a lot that you've got to justify to be able to, to take a person in or to help provide them with the help that you may think they need because 
they're an adult. They can, they can do what they want, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's so hard because I, I, I do get both sides. I get the side of the police, but then I get the side of the family being like, no, get on this right away. Um, so, I mean, I just, I just feel for you guys in every aspect there. Um, one thing I did want to ask you is that I read something about her, like, I guess kind of experimenting with the, the stairwell, if you will, and possibly trying to practice ways to get around cameras that were surrounding her house. Do you, do you know anything about that or feel any certain way about that? Yeah. So that was the morning that she had disappeared. Uh, two of the roommates were having lunch and they noticed her, scaling the the fence on the side of the house and their words uh oh we just thought she was being crazy um when we look at it what we see is her trying to avoid cameras and get out of the house without being seen so this is where it's probably good for me to mention that there are cameras inside her home that the landlord uh maintains so there's cameras inside the home at the front foyer. There's cameras up the stairs. There's cameras in the kitchen. And there's cameras near the door. The camera would have been kind of facing the door that she would go in to go up to her apartment. And then there's cameras on the outside of the house. So by going the way that they had saw her moving that morning, it looks to us like she was trying to avoid the cameras. Okay, sure. Yep. Now, um, here, here's the side note to that. The server for the cameras are in the basement. Gotcha. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, do you can you think of any reason why she would try to avoid the cameras? No. I, like, we have nothing. So, Holly, again, Holly's just, she's Holly. So, she's she was incredibly frugal. So, she, the only technology she used was her work phone and her work laptop. And because of the relationship, uh, the Sunday morning after she had initially disappeared, we went in and, and because she used these work devices, we were able to track literally everything she did. Everything. Every step she took, if she had her phone with her, every everything she Googled, everything she wrote, every email she punched in. Um, everything is, is essentially auditable, um, on the devices that she'd used. And there really wasn't anything that would give us an indication as to why, why the cameras would all of a sudden be a problem. There was nothing on, on any of the devices that would, would give that away. Sure. I mean, I wonder if she was trying to get in there to see if there was footage of these guys who were chasing her. Maybe. Yeah. So definitely so maybe people didn't think she was crazy or whatever. Yeah, absolutely could be. I mean, just a thought. I feel like I'm sure we could theorize all day. Um, oh, there's so many, right? Like it could be, girl, it could be everything from she's trying to find the footage to find the guys that are chasing her to um, she did something she, she shouldn't have. So she was going to try and destroy the footage to... Um, I need to get footage of this because somebody else has been doing something they shouldn't have and I need to report it. Like you can go down the rabbit hole so many different ways. And I think unfortunately that's not going to be something that we'll ever actually get the answer to. I did ask Elle if Holly had any issues with her roommates and she essentially said, no, not really. 
there were typical roommate squabbles, especially over the recording studio. But there was nothing major that she was overly concerned about in relation to Holly's disappearance. So again, this brings us to January 11th. And before we get into the route that Holly took after leaving her house, I think it's important to mention that she only took $45 with her. She left behind her cell phone, her debit card, and all personal items. She didn't even bring a jacket on this very rainy and cold day. But Holly was also known to love running in the rain. So these circumstances lead me to believe that Holly didn't plan on being gone for very long and was possibly just getting out of the house to let off a little steam. In addition to this, Holly actually made several plans for the rest of the month, including for the night that she went missing. But she never returned home to fulfill those plans. Let's talk about the route Holly took when she left her house. So, Holly lived directly across the street from Woodlands Park which is where she headed to first before being captured on surveillance video grabbing a trash bag out of a garbage can and wearing it as a poncho. Another camera soon picks her up heading north, now also carrying a different trash bag filled with who knows what. A few minutes later, she is still heading north. Surveillance video picks her up again, but the trash bag she was holding is now gone. Volunteers and police would be able to obtain seven pieces of surveillance video showing Holly on this route. Not all have been released to the public, but the last camera captures her at 4.55pm heading north on Wentworth Street. Had she kept going north on Wentworth, there would have been buildings that captured her walking, but none of them did. According to Elle, Holly didn't appear to be going in a single direction, but she was more walking in this figure eight style. So I had to ask Elle if she recognized anything significant about Holly's route. No, that, so that's the thing. So she, she walks out the door, she crosses the street, she crosses the next road. By then it's absolutely torrential pouring rain. So she reaches in a garbage can, takes out a garbage bag, and makes a poncho. And for the majority of people, again, the the assumption would be that would not be a normal thing to do. Um, in, In their family, they would actually pack garbage bags and go to folk music festivals. Just in case it started to rain, the family would then make ponchos and, and find their way back from, from the festival they were at. So for, for her and, and the, the family, this would be a very common thing. Maybe not from a garbage can, but it would not be a stretch to pull a, a garbage bag and use it. So to me, the fact that she pulled out a garbage bag and put it on her body tells me that she, she was caring for herself. She wasn't, she wasn't being um, erratic or irrational. She, she was rationalizing, putting a garbage bag on her body. Um, from there, she kind of, the, the footage that we've, we found the search crews and, and the public provided us, she kind of does a, a figure eight and half, like halfway through that figure eight, she ends up finding a garbage bag and putting it over her shoulder and it's full of stuff. And then she loses it. She, she gets rid of the bag and keeps going that we don't know what what was going on uh we never never did find the bag not that that um that it would be an easy thing to find uh 
but we, we really don't understand the route that she took. We, again, we have ideas. Her car was parked near kind of the back end of the figure eight that she was doing. So Dave thought, well, maybe she was walking to her car. And then the, the next thought was, well, maybe she was walking towards the, the train tracks. Um, her family lives in an area of Calgary that has train tracks that go just in front of the house. She loves trains. So maybe she was going to walk the tracks and, and just kind of clear her head or like we, we really, again, we just, we theorize and we, we go down this rabbit hole more times than I can possibly count. We just, there's, there was really truly nothing of interest along the path that she had, had chosen. This is where we get into the search. The next day, so now Sunday, January 12th, Holly's parents arrive in Hamilton to now not pick up their daughter, but to search for her. And soon after, Elle flies out as well. And although I have to say that really no one knows what to do in situations like this, Holly's parents and Elle probably had the best, most cohesive approach to leading a search like this that I've ever seen. Here is Elle describing what happens next. Well, so I, the way that we, we approached this was almost like a business. Um, everybody got given a role. So everybody sat down. We said, okay, well, what are you good at? What would you like to do? How would you want to help? And Holly's mom, Greta, you, you really don't see or hear from her much, but she was on the ground and boots on the ground more than anybody in this this whole thing. Um, she would be up all night driving the road. She would, uh, sleep for a couple hours and then get up and go for a drive and go looking for her. She talked to the homeless. She talked to the vulnerable, uh, Greta found, um, meaning in, in physically doing the work. Um, Dave and I ended up becoming the face of this because we ended up being good at it. Um, which is not something I think anybody really wants to admit to. Uh, but it takes a certain amount of patience and transparency that that is not... Oh, God, every time I say this, it just it sounds so uh, self-serving. Um, it's not an easy role to be in. So Dave and I ended up both saying, okay, well, let's just do this together will be the face of it together. And Dave's not socially, uh, he's not a social media person and he's not uh, technologically inclined. So you end up seeing me on, on Facebook and things like that. But if you look at, at the interviews and stuff, it's usually uh, 50, 50, we'll split the, split the conversation. So you don't get tired of just hearing his voice or just hearing mine, man, we were lucky. Like I, I know that everybody ended up seeing my face, but the reality is there was 20 people behind me at all times that were on the ground looking for her or running social media or triaging tips or uh, driving um, informants or looking for uh, houses that she could be in. Like there were so many people that helped to make this possible. Like we, the way that Hamilton came together, police force, whether you agree with them or not, the police force, the public, it just, HPD said it themselves. Um, they have never seen anything like this. In all the all the cases and all the situations that they've had, they've never seen the community come together like they came together for Holly. 
I love that, though. I mean, do you do you have any theory about why that is? Is it because of her, you know, reputation in the music community? Was it fans or were people just kind of engrossed by this story and, you know, compelled to help? I think it was a combination of things. I think Holly, I think the, the people on our team that did what they could for social media did an exceptional job with it. And they got the information out there. I think making the relationships with the media that we did was key. I think moderating social media was a big deal. Um, Being approachable via social media was a big deal. Uh, Honesty, transparency, I think are all a big thing. And at the end of the day, who Holly was, was a big draw. Like you said yourself, you could see yourself being her best friend. And that was a very common theme through this. Everybody's saying, well, I could totally be her friend. The search for Holly was massive. There were hundreds of volunteers. They had ground patrols, canine units, search and rescue teams. They had billboards. And there was even a mural painted of Holly in order to help raise awareness. They did check her electronic devices and her bank account, but there was no indication as to where Holly could be or why she wasn't coming home. Soon, Dave created a video in hopes of reaching Holly. Hi, Holly. Look what we've got. We're, uh, we're looking for you because we really miss you. Um, I am hoping that this is just a really, really um, elaborate album launch that, uh, uh, because we're, uh, we really miss you, Holly. And, uh, you know, uh, if you're afraid of um, people finding you, there's got to be a way that you could get a message to us. Just uh, just do something that lets us know where you are. Uh, well, we've thought you're, you're dead sometimes, and uh, we hope you're not. Um, Greta has, like, cried herself to sleep. Me too. Um, Fatima was uh, just screaming in the car the other day when she thought somebody had done something to you. So we hope that hasn't happened. We hope that you're all right somewhere, that you're taking care of yourself, that somebody else is taking care of you or something. Maybe it's all a soap opera. You've, uh, You've been knocked on the head. A horse kicked you in the head or something. You uh, have amnesia, but you're being, you've been adopted by somebody and you're like a princess in Switzerland and you just uh, have to wait for the horse to hit you on the head again and call us back. Whatever it is, uh, if you have any way of seeing this anywhere, just contact us. Okay. Thanks. There would be several alleged sightings of Holly, but one by one, the police would rule them out. I want to be very clear that Holly's family and Elle have been very pleased with the work of the many different police agencies that have been involved in Holly's case. But like in pretty much all missing persons or murder investigations, there were points of contention. 
For example, pretty much immediately, the police ruled out any type of possibility that foul play could be involved in Holly's case, despite the reports of her stating that two men were trying to kill her. And ex-detective from the York Regional Police Kevin Bryan has publicly expressed his disappointment in search crews following up on tips on their own without police. But the largest public disagreement by far came about 10 days after Holly disappeared, when a tip that Holly was being held at a local budget-in motel that was known for being a hotspot for human trafficking came in. When officers first arrived at the Budget Inn Motel to follow up on this lead, they went to the front desk and asked management if they'd seen Holly. And they said no. From there, the police did look around a bit, possibly spoke to some people on the property, and then they left. And this didn't sit well with Holly's parents, or these hundreds of volunteers who had been looking for Holly. They wanted a full sweep of the motel. And at first, the police refused. That is, until people began protesting outside of the motel. They held signs that said, bring Holly home, we love you Holly, and even signs that said, release Holly now. And eventually, the police gave in and searched every single room of the motel. Which the motel would state was something that they would have allowed the police to do from the moment they came looking for her. But unfortunately, there was no sign of Holly at this motel. It wouldn't be until February 3rd, 2020, that there was another possible sighting of Holly. This came from a surveillance video near the area she went missing from. It captured a woman with a garbage bag over her shoulder, walking right past one of Holly's missing persons posters. Now, the police have come out and stated that they just don't believe the woman in the video was Holly. This person was wearing a totally different set of clothing than what Holly was last seen wearing and no one who knew Holly could identify this clothing to be hers. But when her family saw the video, they said that due to the height of this person, their mannerisms, and the way that they walked, they are pretty confident that it was indeed Holly. After all, Holly was over six feet tall and was extremely athletic. She would be pretty hard to miss. But either way, this video did not lead investigators to finding Holly. Unfortunately, from here, the case becomes very stagnant. And since the Hamilton police were unable to find anything to corroborate Holly's claims that she was in fear for her life, they still didn't suspect foul play. Which, honestly, blew my mind. In my true crime brain, when someone says that they're fearful for their life, that two men chased them through the woods, and then that person goes missing, a huge red alert in my brain screams, foul play. So I had to ask Elle what she thought of this. Yeah, there's no, there's no actual evidence to foul play. And by actual evidence, I mean hard, tangible evidence. The, the concept of foul play that we have is all, she told her mom and dad that she'd been running all night through the woods uh, away from these men. But we don't have anything that that says that this happened. Um, we have evidence we found in June, quite a while after, that she had told somebody uh, about a week before, I guess, that two men were trying to kill her. And then she just kind of carried on 
doing what she was doing. And again, we, there's just nothing, nothing tangible. Now that's not to say that she's not wrong. Just because there's nothing tangible doesn't mean that it's not real. There's just nothing for the police to go on to say, yes, we agree that there's, there's potential foul play happening here. Sure. Okay. I get that. Yeah. I mean, of course, in, in my true crime brain, I'm like, no, she told people that she was being chased. You know, all these things are happening for me. Like, that's that's such hard evidence. But I understand the police, you know, coming out and saying that if there's nothing physical to tie that to, if they are not able to pull any type of surveillance to prove that, um, that makes total sense to me. I was just wondering if there was anything else behind that. No, it, it came out to there's just not there's no smoking gun, per se. Um, there's the the secondary, um, the, the, he said, she said, uh, this is what Holly said, but she wasn't around to back it up or to set, to tell anybody this. Uh, I think it might've been different if perhaps she hadn't disappeared and she was like, no, two guys, white guy, black guy, tall, dark, uh, handsome, blonde, you know, like if there was some sort of, uh, descriptor that she would be able to give, but unfortunately, there just there wasn't wasn't anything to go off of and Hamilton police I I mean they got put in a a difficult situation and I I appreciate everything that they have done for us they they truly have gone above and beyond it might not seem like it uh, (laughs) through social media they are they have been excellent with us beyond excellent um it took a little bit of building of a relationship to make it excellent, but they they truly were great to deal with while we were dealing with them. And unfortunately with legislation and the way things sit in Canada, there's only so much they can do. Their hands are tied with a lot of things, whether you like it or not, it's, it's the reality that we're, that we're living in. And unfortunately Holly's situation ended up having a number of these hands tied situations. There wouldn't be much movement in Holly's case until September of 2020, so eight months after Holly went missing. This is when Holly's remains were found at Hamilton Harbor in Lake Ontario, just a few minutes from Holly's home. The water had never been searched, and Holly was only able to be identified by her dental records. They still don't know where Holly entered the water or how long she'd been there but apparently a portion of her legs were not able to be recovered. Here is Elle expanding more on this. When Holly was found in Ontario, the way it works is there's a, the police are on scene and then you get the coroner's office and then there's a medical examiner. So I know this is not the same uh, everywhere, but this is how it, it works in Ontario is that she, her remains were taken in and the, medical examiner did the the first autopsy on Holly and then the coroner actually goes and they're kind of like a a badass detective you know like they the coroner's job is to take all the information and provide you answers so who what when where why how and the coroner's office um we've been in contact with them And the first autopsy was done. And then we were in contact again with the coroner's office. And the information that they provided was not quite enough 
Um, so we've, we've made this public and I apologize. It will be a little bit graphic. I'll, I'll try to, um, to make it a bit easier here. Um, but the coroner told us that unfortunately Holly's, um, the way that she phrased it to me was that, uh, her legs were not with her when she was found. And the way that the coroner phrased it to Dave was that her lower legs were not with her. So Dave is incredibly literal. Words matter. And I, I couldn't agree with him more. Words matter. Um, so he was losing it because in his mind, lower legs are knees down. Right? With me so far? Yeah, absolutely. So that to him signaled foul play. Because for knees down to not be with a person is not something that, that you would anticipate necessarily. So we managed to convince the medical examiner to do a second autopsy. So I managed to find the chief, um, chief medical officer's uh, email and sent him a cold email and was like, hey, hey man, I know you don't know me, but... And he was good enough to respond. He responded immediately, uh, like within minutes, and said, yes, I, I've heard of the case. I know the case. I know the situation. My team already did one. But if you'd like, yes, I can do this. We will we'll pick up her remains and do a second one. So Ontario agreed to do something that they have never done before. They did a second autopsy, and they kept it completely separate from the first. So this helped immensely. It helped ease Dave's mind immensely because we now have two separate teams that were working on the situation separately. So the idea should be that they should both come back with the same conclusion. And that's the part that we're waiting on is the same conclusion. After discussing the autopsy, Elle asked me to put in a very specific message from her about the way that families are notified when things happen in cases like this. I think the only other thing that I would, would want to add, if there's any way to add it in or how, however you may phrase your, your podcast, is that one of the things that people don't realize is that when a case becomes high profile and the person is found, the family has a very defined amount of time to tell the people that matter before a press release goes out. And whether you like it or not, that is the mandate of every police service or police department. If it's high profile, they will have their press person create a, a bulletin that goes out. And in our case, we had literally 35 minutes before it went out. So Dave and Greta, not only having to hear that their daughter was found, they now had 35 minutes to tell the entire family and friends. So you can imagine how triaging that went and how many people unfortunately found out via social media. So if I can impart anything on those that are in the situation, make sure you've got your list of people that you'll need to call if they're found alive or deceased. Um, and everybody else, please just be patient it's the, the amount of time that you're given is, is minimal. Um, 
And that, that can be incredibly hurtful if you don't know that, that tiny bit of information. To Elle's point, I can 100% confirm from my own experience that that is exactly how things happen. But unfortunately, Elle and Holly's family don't have many answers as to what happened to Holly. They don't know how she got in the water or where she entered it from. They don't know where or how she died. But it was not considered a suicide. And although the police still don't believe that foul play was involved, Holly's father Dave isn't so sure. Telling CBC News in Canada, quote, I don't understand the notion that there's nothing suspicious when a person expresses to a number of other people before they go missing that they're very worried that two men are trying to kill them, and that person ends up drowned. That's really weird. And to say that's not suspicious is even weirder. End quote. And I have to say, I'm right there with Dave. But anything is possible. People do have psychotic breaks that result in their death. But considering the circumstances and her having no history of mental illness or behaving this way ever, I understand why Dave fears the worst. And until they can come back with the results of the second autopsy report, all we can do is wait and help share Holly's story in hopes of generating new leads. If we can find out how and where Holly got into the water, if we could find a witness to say, yes, I saw a woman matching Holly's description running from two men that day, if we could get any more pieces to this puzzle, it would be invaluable to this investigation. Which, of course, brings me to asking Elle what she would suggest our call to action for Holly's case be. Oh, I did not expect that question. Uh, you know what? I, I'm going to be a little bit mean about it. Uh, missing dogs and missing cats get more attention than a missing person on social media. And that makes me angry. Incredibly angry. So if I were to ask your listeners to do anything, it would be to share the faces of those that are missing. Share it on your social media. Talk about missing people. Talk about missing persons. Talk about it. And keep your eyes open for people. I, I think it's, it absolutely, it, it hurts my heart to see dogs and, and cats taking precedence over humans and and I think as, a, as, as humans, we can do better. So I would say even just the little things, sharing the podcast, sharing the photos, taking an interest in your community and the people around you, I think that's the absolute best thing anybody could do. Absolutely. And I, you know, I have to say nine times out of 10, that is the action step is just share the, you know, share the picture of this person in hopes of generating leads. So you guys can get some more answers. I mean, the thing is, someone saw something, you know, I understand that they still don't know kind of where she entered the water at, you know, who was around, who who can come forward and give you guys that information. I, I hope that, you know, by my listeners sharing that perhaps, you know, something can come of it that way. Yeah, that would, and I mean, we're, we're open. The, the email address is, is rockin'. It's um, bringhollyhome2020 at gmail.com. Uh, there's a Facebook group, uh, DM me directly on Facebook. Like if you've got information, it, it doesn't matter how inconsequential you think it is. Every piece of this puzzle creates the larger picture. Every one of them. 
honestly, I mean, I, I just said that in my last episode, that these cases are like big puzzles and every piece, oh. every tip, every lead matters. Um, we are like on the same wavelength. Yeah. It's, it's like people don't realize if somebody were to call me and say, you know what, Elle? Yeah, I saw her that day and I saw her at Street X and Y. Like that will make everything for us. Like we... We know her last steps per video, and we've got one person that has come ahead and said, well, no, I saw her on the other side of the tracks. It's only 20 feet difference, but that's 20 feet further than we had. You know, it it all matters. It all matters. As always, there will be photos and information posted about Holly on VoicesForJusticePodcast.com and across my social media accounts. You do not have to share those particular images, but I do ask that you do share. Holly was a strong, brave, yet gentle soul who was taken from this world way too soon. Her family and Elle deserve answers as to what happened to her. In honor of Holly, instead of my normal outro music, I wanted to leave you with a song that she wrote and performed by herself, titled Fake Romance. But, as always... Thank you, I love you, and I'll talk to you next time. Dry off your eyes, you're always hiding by this life.
Thank you. 